Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the wall of separation between church and state. The United States Constitution deals with religion in the First Amendment, the same one that deals with freedom of speech, press, assembly, and petition. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. There are two religious liberties guaranteed here. The Establishment Clause, no law respecting an establishment of religion, means the U.S. can't create an official state church, like the Church of England. There will be no state-endorsed religion, and our laws won't be based on religious edicts. This distances us from the possibility of a theocracy, which most people, barring evangelical Christians and the Islamic State, recognize as a good thing. The Free Exercise Clause, the second part, means you can't be prohibited from being a member of a certain religion, though this doesn't mean you can break any law just because your religion says so. Or at least it didn't mean that before RIFRA. If your religion demands regular human sacrifice, you aren't allowed to do that because murder violates U.S. law. So there's a division between belief and practice. You can believe whatever you want. You don't have to recant your beliefs about human sacrifice, as you might have been compelled to do prior to secularism and church-state separation. Believers don't seem to understand that church-state separation is a good thing for them. From their perspective, it's the self-interested position. The ones who are most loudly against it are the ones who believe themselves to be a majority or to have a strong enough coalition to call the shots. Evangelicals might not enjoy cultural dominance, but they are disproportionately influential. If there were a politically strong Muslim contingency in the U.S., evangelicals might feel a little differently about secularism. Teaching religion in schools wouldn't sound so appealing if they didn't have serious political clout. And even if we were just a nation of Christians, whose Christianity do we teach in schools? Do we let the Westboro Baptists take the lead, or Jehovah's Witnesses? Should Jordan Peterson be leading class prayers? What about Mormonism? Unitarian Universalism? If we settled on Catholicism, whose Catholicism? Mel Gibson's? In the not-so-distant past, rival sects of Christianity went to war with each other. They took over entire governments and murdered their opponents. They burned heretics and stole their belongings. Secularism is the reason that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Secularism makes that illegal. If someone is trying to kill someone else, it doesn't matter if it's for a religious reason. Armies, police, legislation, and state resources at large are not allowed to be used in religious sectarian conflicts. That is a good thing, and it's a great thing for religious people. Secularism is not atheism. Secularism is having a wall of separation. What they're imagining is what they advocate except with Christianity replaced with atheism, reading a passage of The God Delusion every morning, and leading class prayer to the flying spaghetti monster. Atheists and advocates of church-state separation are not asking for this. Unfortunately, even if secularism isn't atheism, it can still feel like an attack on certain versions of fundamentalist religion. For literalists, more or less every field of study conflicts with their version of events which is why they send their kids to special schools, or no school, with special books and special teachers. Physics, chemistry, biology, geology, history, and many other fields contradict the Bible, if it's taken literally. 
Separating the church from public education is an assault on biblical literalism, even if that doesn't necessarily mean it's a promotion of atheism. If you doubt this, open a Christian chemistry textbook or a biology textbook and read for a while. The point remains, however, that secularism is not state atheism, just because it's a threat to one particular strain of Christianity. It's not an assault on all versions of Christianity. Which brings us back to the impossible question of, whose Christianity do we teach? I feel strongly about ensuring individuals the right to believe in whatever dumb religion they choose without threat. Separation of church and state is an excellent way to ensure freedom of religion. The government shouldn't promote any position on religion, and no religion should have an outsized influence on the government. We only have to compare this way of doing things to any of the alternatives, and there really shouldn't be a need to have an argument after that for any sensible person. In Islamic State-controlled territory, religious law is enforced by the government. They have religious police, funded by taxes, whose purpose is to look for religious violations and hand out the corresponding punishments, which are frequently excessive and cruel. In some Muslim-majority countries, whenever the government changes hands from Sunni to Shia or vice versa, the Muslims out of power begin to face serious oppression. And there's no legal argument against that, because there's no separation of church and state. Legislation and law enforcement can be used to persecute members of the religion that's out of power. Freedom of belief ensured by religious toleration sprung from the ground of religious warfare and persecution. It may seem absurd to us now, but there really was a time when public resources were used to settle theological disputes. In the aftermath of the European wars of religion, John Locke argued in his letters concerning toleration that human beings are not going to be able to figure out which religion is true, and then come to a universal agreement. Even if we accept that one particular sect of Christianity is the right one, how are we supposed to figure out which one? And then, how do we convince everyone it's the right one? Many religious people seem to indulge in a fantasy that it would all be smooth sailing if everyone shared their religious beliefs. The situation is so hypothetical that it's hard to make predictions, but what is definitely a fantasy is getting everyone on the same page about which religion is the right one, and which version of which religion is the right one. You will never convince everybody of your religion. That's a fact that we have to work with. So the only option left for those who think prosperity and order is a matter of getting religious questions ironed out correctly is the use of force, or a combination of force and reason. But enforcing one religious viewpoint would not have the desired effect, because beliefs wouldn't change. You could only change outward actions performed in public. You will never successfully use reason or force to bring about true religious uniformity. Again, many religious people think that our problems all stem from worshipping the wrong god, worshipping the right god in the wrong way, kicking god out of schools, pushing god out of government, and so on. John Locke and others realized that this was all a fool's errand, and rejected the framework that had been operated with up until that point. Locke reasoned that trying to coerce religious uniformity would lead to more social disorder than just enforcing a rule of toleration and freedom of belief. Freedom of religion, ensured by secularism, leads to more prosperity and order than trying in vain to impose one religion on everybody. Evangelicals bristle at the idea of church-state separation, but only because they believe they have a real chance at holding the government's reins. 
if they were a politically unmobilized sector that had no serious influence, which could not be farther from the reality of our current situation, they would undoubtedly have different views, especially if a despised rival was politically mobilized and wielded great influence. They would probably be much bigger fans of secular government if there were suddenly a Muslim silent majority that had their own equivalent to President Trump and Vice President Pence. The Christians who are most loudly against separation of church and state are the ones who believe themselves to be a majority or to have a strong enough coalition to call the shots. Evangelicals might not enjoy cultural dominance, but they have immense cultural and political influence. Sadly, this is not at all limited to church-state separation or evangelical Christians. Liberalism in general tends to be least valued by those who enjoy massive influence or cultural dominance. Take the Red Scare of the 1950s. The right wing had zero concern for freedom of expression, freedom of belief, freedom of speech, etc., when they had control and the power to blacklist people they didn't like. In the 60s, the left was all about free speech. That was because they needed it. Communists and anti-capitalists were put on trial for their beliefs and their speech, fired from their jobs, shunned from public life, and blacklisted. Vietnam protesters were violently attacked regularly, and some were even killed, and this was cheered on. Now that the right wing is waning in cultural influence, they've had an epiphany and now see the importance of freedom of speech. Very few actually believe in free speech. The political philosopher Noam Chomsky, one of the most consistent defenders of free speech I know of, is so cynical about this dynamic that he once claimed you could fit everyone who believed in free speech in the country inside the room he was speaking in. He was speaking in a living room. The vast majority of people believe in freedom of speech for people they like, and not for people they don't like. In other words, they don't believe in free speech. As I mentioned, this seems to extend to liberal protections generally. The groups with cultural dominance or significant influence tend to care less about liberal values and change their minds when they lose that influence. Evangelicals only hate secularism because we're talking about church-state separation instead of mosque-state separation. In fact, JFK, the first and only Catholic president, faced extreme opposition from Protestants, who believed Kennedy would be a Vatican operative. Before Kennedy, only one Catholic, Alfred Smith, had ever been a major presidential nominee. That was in 1928, and Smith's campaign was a failure. His opponents claimed that he would build a tunnel connecting the White House and the Vatican, and would amend the Constitution to make Catholicism the official state religion. JFK faced all the same obstacles, and he had to repeatedly assure Protestant leaders that he strongly believed in separation of church and state. They were only comfortable with his presidential bid because he reassured them of his commitment to church-state separation. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source. When no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace, or the public acts 
of its officials. And where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Religious people often try to take credit for liberalism and Western values, but they're oddly quiet about secularism. Of course, no liberal values come directly from religion, but church-state separation is especially laughable. The Abrahamic monotheisms all envision some version of theocracy in their holy books, which is as far as you can get from secularism. Church-state separation is a Western value, whether Christians like it or not. Western values were not produced by Judeo-Christian values. In fact, they're often in direct conflict. I explained this in more depth in the Western Values episode from a while back, but several passages in the Bible contradict liberal values, and secularism is no exception. It's clear from Old Testament law that God thinks there should be no wall of separation. Religious law should be the law of the land. Religious authorities should be the government. Normal laws don't apply to them. And in the unfortunate event that there is no theocracy, the state leaders should consult and obey prophets. It's time we properly address the wall. I'm not talking about the border. I'm talking about the wall separating church and state. The problem is, this phrase is nowhere in the Constitution. Not only is this phrase not in the U.S. Constitution, but every single state constitution makes explicit references to God and religion. The phrase separation of church and state did come from one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who used it in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Church in Connecticut they were concerned that the First Amendment was not strong enough to protect their religious freedom. Jefferson assured them that the Constitution built a wall separating church and state, meaning that the state could not also control the church. So if this phrase isn't in the U.S. Constitution and its original use by Thomas Jefferson meant the opposite of how it's being used today, how did it become so indoctrinated in our policy debates and even U.S. Supreme Court opinions? At a time when religious people are being targeted more and more by government through bad policies, unelected bureaucrats, and liberal activists, we would do well to remember Jefferson's vision and the true meaning of separation of church and state. Did you know it never says the words wall of separation between church and state in the U.S. Constitution? Oh, well, shucks, I guess we'll just have a theocracy then. The phrase does not, in fact, appear in the Constitution. But as many of you may know, it comes from one of the letters of Thomas Jefferson. I'm not sure why anti-secularists, like the one you just heard, think this is a point in their favor, since Jefferson was explaining in his letter how the Constitution should be interpreted. It was actually similar to the JFK situation. The Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, wrote to Jefferson because they feared persecution. Persecution from who? Deists? Secularists? The Danbury Baptists feared persecution from the Danbury Congregationalists. Secularism is not a threat to freedom of religion. It protects freedom of religion. So I guess I would say to religious people, secularism is your friend, at least in the long run. In the video I played a second ago, it was implied that the wall of separation was intended to keep government out of religion, but that was it. According to him, government stays out of religion, but religion doesn't have to stay out of government. I don't think that guy knows how walls work. They both, you can't go either way. The point that's being missed is that keeping religion out of government is the way to keep government out of religion. It's the best way, and possibly the only way. 
That's all I have for you today. The YouTuber Cosmic Skeptic made a t-shirt that says, Build the Wall Between Church and State. I thought that was pretty funny, so it's linked in the show notes. And happy July 4th to all my beautiful patrons and my patron hall of fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Nathan Grounds, and Pre-Nifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still fantasize about violently murdering David Barton, you can find me on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review on iTunes, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.